0: Compassion
1: 5 11 to 21. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it also is plain to your conscience. We are not trying to condemn ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is sin rather than on what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are conceived that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is, is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old one has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God
2: Father, we want to give everything we are to you. You have been so merciful and gracious to us. As we come to this place of worship today, it's our desire that you be glorified. And it's our desire that you speak deeply into our souls that we might leave today more like Christ than we have come. So pour out your blessing on this gathering of your people in this place. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. In the interest of staying warm, I'm going to invite you to stand and uh, greet each other again. Uh, share, greet each other. Share a word of greeting with those who are here in uh, worship today. Good morning. as we gather today, there are a lot of things happening in the life of the church as we get back into our regular routine after the holidays. And so you'll want to just take a look through the bulletin of a variety of things that are happening. Uh, I did want to uh, take a moment and uh, introduce Stacy Hinderleiter. Stacy is a full-time intern with us this semester. She graduated from the college in December. Some of you may know her. She's been working with the youth group for the past uh, three years or so, very involved and done a lot with them. And so we're excited about um, having her here working this semester. I'm sure you'll be seeing her or hearing from her in a variety of uh, different contexts. And uh, so I want you to welcome her. And uh, we're excited about having her here as a part of our ministry team this semester. Uh, You'll note that tonight small groups begin meeting. ...insert in your bulletin about those with details. Wednesday evening, all of our ministries are up and running on regular schedule. And next Sunday morning, we continue gathering worship at eight twenty-nine, forty, 40, and 11. There are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin, as always. And I want to add a few things to this. Uh, we also we want to pray for the Haiti uh, team, medical dental team that's in Haiti. They've had some, uh, some illnesses that prevented some of the members from going... Uh, There are always issues that are related to being on the ground there, but we're praying that God will bless them uh, during their time there in ministry. I also want to uh, pray for our brothers and sisters, particularly in northern Nigeria, who are facing uh, some very uh, severe uh, persecution and threats, and we want to pray for them and the church there. There are also a couple of of, uh, concerns uh, more locally related, uh, John Smith, Shelley Noy's father, is having surgery Tuesday uh, to remove a cancerous growth from his colon. I want to pray for him, and also for Clayton Templeton. Uh, he has been in the hospital in Wellsville, and just got word this morning they're transferring him to Strong. He has pneumonia, and uh, they're a little bit concerned about his heart. So we want to pray for uh, Clayton and Jeremy and Heather and their family as well, and for other needs and concerns that we bring with us pray for God's grace and mercy uh, to be at work in each of our lives.
3: As in days of old, uh, would you please stand for the reading of the scripture? I'm reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. It's page 984 in your pew Bibles. The Lord Jesus spoke to the people, saying, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? The king will reply, When did we see you sick? The king will reply, "I, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left on his left Depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink I was a, I was a stranger and you did not invite me in I needed clothes and you did not clothe me I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. At this time, this is the word of the Lord. At this time, I would like to invite the ushers forward to receive our tithes and offerings. And children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church. You may be seated.
0: To the grave, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse to stay. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to.
2: opportunity to pray together. If you'd like to use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to join me. Heavenly Father, we come to you because your majesty is beyond comprehension. Your love is so great, so broad, so deep and high. And we ask today that you will reveal who you are to us. And that you will help us to see you in a way that we have not seen you before. Father, we come today recognizing that our world is filled with so much pain and heartache and hatred and evil. We pray, Father, that in your grace, you will melt the hatred that divides us and separates us and causes us to hurt each other. We pray, Father, that you will instead draw us to one another. Help us to see that our connection to each other is you, our creator, our God, our Father, our King. We pray, Father, for for your grace to be poured out upon this world. We know that there are many of our brothers and sisters who live with the constant threat of violence and opposition, and we think especially of the Christians in northern Nigeria. We pray that you will be peace and protection and comfort and grace to them, and let their lives bear witness to you in a miraculous way. Father, we pray that that you will penetrate into the deepest recesses of our world. Those places where there is so much suffering and conflict and war. Places where people know nothing of Jesus. Places where people are hostile or apathetic toward Jesus. We pray, Father, that that you will pour out your spirit in a new way upon this world and upon us. Father, reveal yourself in our places of need. In our grief, speak words of comfort and surround us with your presence. In our pain, illness, and injury, we pray that you will heal every disease through your spirit, through the wisdom you've given to human minds. We pray especially for John Smith today and ask that you would watch over him as he goes into the surgery and that you would work your healing power in his body. We pray for Clayton and ask that you would touch him and heal him as well. And we pray for everyone who who is going to be treating him. We ask that you would give them wisdom and that his body would respond to the treatments and that you would touch him and heal him fully. Father, we pray for others among us who are struggling with illness and pain and difficulties. And we ask that you will bring healing and grace to bear in each body, in each life, each spirit, each soul. Father, as we think about the, the team that's in Haiti, we pray for your grace upon them and pray your blessing on their ministry. And that you would do marvelous things in them and through them in their time there. Father, there's so much that we bring with us today as we come to worship. In this moment of silence, as we pour out before you the burdens and the concerns and all of the things that are on our hearts, hear our prayers. Father, on this weekend, when we honor the memory of Dr. King, we pray that you will so fill us with love, with the love of Christ, that we will be ready and willing agents of reconciliation and peace and bring to bear upon our world here and other places your grace, and your presence. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for all of your blessings that are beyond counting. Thank you for all that you have done for us and are doing for us. In gratitude and thanksgiving, we offer our prayers in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the glory forever. Amen.
1: Please stand and sing with us.
2: Appropriate that we uh, just sang the song of Charles Wesley. As I was thinking this week about a story I heard uh, a number of years ago, it took place when John Wesley was probably within the last two or three years of his life. And uh, the story is told that one day uh, he had a meeting with Charles Simeon, who was uh, fast becoming a, uh, a famous preacher in Cambridge and a leader of the Reformed movement of the Anglican Church. Wesley being uh, Arminian and, and Simeon being Calvinist, they had some interesting differences of opinion about theology. And they got together this day and to, and in order to talk through their different viewpoints about the, the sovereignty of God and the free will of human beings. And what was interesting is that when they got done with the conversation, they, they made this statement. They said that when... They defined their terms, which is often one of the reasons we disagree, because we don't define our terms. When they defined the terms, they they realized that they were really not very far apart. But they also came to this conclusion, that the answer to this theological dilemma was not at one extreme or the other. And it was not at some place in the middle. It was both extremes. That in that particular point, God is fully sovereign and human beings have full free will. And it's living in the tension of those two truths that we had to, to figure out how to do that. And I remember hearing that story and, and it's been in the back of my mind for a number of years. And the more I think about that, the more I realize that that really is a big part of the call that is on us as followers of Christ and how we live and what we know about God and the theological perspectives that are a part of, our, uh, of what we believe. What I find over and over again because God is so far beyond us and because our faith has such a large element of mystery that we just simply cannot fully explain and fully wrap our minds around that there comes a point where we have to say that the faith that we have in in God and and in what we believe is this same tension of extremes that we have to hold in tension. And it creates difficulties for us because we tend to be people who like to live in the extreme. Not both extremes, but one extreme. And we tend to value that, and particularly in the culture in which we live now. You think about the political realm of, 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 our, of our culture, particularly in this country, but probably around the world. Right now, you're either on this end or you're on this end. And probably the, the worst place to be and the, maybe the, the worst name you could call someone is to be a moderate. And yet, when we read the Scriptures... We try to figure out what we know about God and what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are continually confronted with the real reality that we live in the truth of tensions. And as I've been pondering that and thinking about that, I'm thinking about these tensions as paradoxes of our faith. When you read through, when you read through the, the parables of Jesus, you can read this parable and you can read that parable, and they almost seem to be saying two opposite things. And we can take that and say, well, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Or we can say, there is something about these two truths that have to be held in tension. It's what we believe about Jesus. And we say, Jesus is fully human and, and fully divine. How can someone be 100% of one thing and 100% of something else? And the answer is not that Jesus is half human and half divine. He's fully both. And we live in that tension. And I believe that one of of the, the marks of maturity as we move along in our understanding of what it means to be a follower of God is the realization that we live in these tensions, in these paradoxes of our faith, And we see that it is a part of the mystery of God that we have to come to grips with. And so over the next few weeks, as I've been pondering this, I've just chosen a few of those paradoxes, and there are lots of them, for us to think about and to consider. Because I think they are imperative to being the kind of people of God that we are called to be. And today I want us to begin by thinking about this paradox of judgment and forgiveness. Now, Scripture does not hesitate to declare the judgment of God in response to sin. Now, we might want to back away from that. Uh, we might feel uncomfortable by, with that. We might feel a little bit embarrassed when we read some of the Scriptures about God's judgment. But Scripture isn't embarrassed and doesn't back away from it. Jesus never seeks to encourage His followers to, uh, to take a shortcut around the judgment and the justice of God. The scriptures are clear. All have sinned. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we deserve judgment. You know, life is all about cause and effect. No one is exempt from the cause and effect of life. A scientist might understand more than anyone else what happens when we talk about the, the issue of gravity. But I don't care how smart and knowledgeable that scientist may be, if she steps off a cliff, you don't experience gravity. And the same is true of all of us. It doesn't matter how much we know or don't know. The reality of life is that when, because we are sinners, we face judgment. Now, the response of some people to God's judgment is denial. People find judgment reprehensible. And so, so we simply decide that we're not going to believe that. We're just going to ignore it. We're going to act like it's not true. I and mean, how could a loving God punish people? Besides, we're not that bad. We're we're not doing anything really that wrong, right? I mean, who are you to tell me what to do? And we hear people say that they can't believe in a God of judgment. Of course, as soon as we read about another oil spill or another drunk driver that kills a car full of teenagers... Or we hear a report of another woman sexually assaulted or political prisoners being tortured or a terrorist attack on innocent civilians or one more corporate giant fleecing the pension fund of its employees. We cry out for judgment. And all the world does. And we want to see these offenders brought to justice. We want to see them put in their place. We want judgment. And honestly, people are angry with God if it doesn't happen it strikes me that our problem is not a God who judges, it's a God who judges us. But the truth is, because we all sin, we all deserve judgment. I think we sh- our culture as a whole struggles to believe that that's true. We find all sorts of ways to excuse and deny our sin... We categorize sins, well at least I don't do what they're doing. We forget that our sin is always against God. And it hurts other people and it brings pain to other people. And the problem isn't so much God's judgment. The problem is our unwillingness to believe that we deserve God's judgment. And the moment judgment enters the discussion, we tend to interpret it as God being capricious. That his anger is out of control. His punishment is a a means of soothing the savage beast. It's hard for us to understand God's wrath and judgment. It's not like ours. We get angry because we're hurt. And, And when we are hurt, we lash out. And our goal is to make people feel our pain. To make people pay for what they've done to us. We are interested in retribution most of the time. But God's wrath and judgment do not come from a heart of retribution. God's judgment and wrath are rooted, honestly, in His love for us. The threat of punishment is intended to turn us from behavior that will destroy us. God's wrath and judgment is rooted in His compassion and His care for us. And until we come to see that, it will be hard for us... To believe that God's judgment really is what we deserve. But this truth gives the tension and the mystery meaning. I mean, you think about a parent. A parent that that never punishes their child. I'm not sure we would say they're loving. If you see a child, if you see your little child running toward the street... Are you going to say, "Well, hey, it's their choice. They're going to have to, you know, they'll, they'll deal with it." I don't want to. I don't want to upset them. No, we yell, we scream, we grab them, and we scare them to death about what they've just about to, what they're just about to do. Is it because we don't like them? Is it because we're angry with them? No, it's because we love them. And somehow we have to come to to see that God's judgment. Is, is about sin, but it's also about loving us and caring for us. As C.S. Lewis says in God in the Dock, mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. And honestly, forgiveness means nothing if it doesn't address real judgment. If judgment is a ruse, then what meaning does forgiveness even have? what's the point of forgiveness why would we even talk about forgiveness it's not really forgiveness at all if judgment is is not real because there's really nothing to forgive and forgiveness only takes on meaning in our world and in our lives if we truly believe that there is judgment that the consequences of sin are judgment and once we come to see that, then forgiveness takes on a whole different dimension. And we understand that it's because of God's mercy that he offers forgiveness to everyone who is willing to surrender to receive it. It's imperative for us to know that God, that God forgives. And that it's rooted in his character as a loving father. It's not based on our worthiness as though we could make ourselves good enough. It's based on God who is love and who loves to forgive. We don't have to convince God to forgive us. He loves to forgive us. Now Francis Thompson's famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, tells of a soul fleeing from God, seeking love, hiding in the recesses of his own mind, trying to throw God off the track in the woods of pleasure, trying to forget him in the fascinations of science, being unable to escape the pursuit of God. God never gives up on him. Never stops seeking him. It's what the psalmist is telling us in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up in the heavens, you're there. If I go down into the depths, you're there. And God loves us and wants to forgive us. Not because we will necessarily return that love. And God forgives us not necessarily because we will always accept His forgiveness. He loves and forgives without any strings attached. It's just who He is. This passage about the sheep and the goats I think is confusing for a lot of evangelicals because it doesn't fit our conversion theology. You know, we see forgiveness as contingent on believing right things or usually on saying the right words in some kind of a prayer. But as helpful as beliefs and important as beliefs are and as important as as prayer can be and the need to pray about receiving forgiveness, we receive forgiveness when we acknowledge that we deserve judgment and that we want Christ's will for our lives. Jesus is very clearly talking in this passage about the judgment day and about eternity. And there's no mention of praying a certain, praying certain words about Jesus or about believing the right things. And that tends to make us nervous. Our problem is that we interpret helping people in need as a means to an end. We believe that Jesus, maybe Jesus is telling us... That if you want to get into heaven, then what you need to do is to help people in need. And of course, that doesn't fit our theology. And so we start deconstructing the passage. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. I think Jesus is saying, if you want to know whether you're still under judgment, or you have truly surrendered your life to Christ's forgiveness, then look at how you treat people who are most needy and least desirable. Helping people isn't some kind of formula for getting into heaven. Helping people is the most natural response of a person who has experienced Christ's forgiveness and is no longer living under the judgment of sin. We want to be truly forgiven by God and God's mercy and love and by the dynamics of his kingdom. When we want to be forgiven and when we're ready to be forgiven, then we want his will on earth as it is in heaven. What's important in heaven is what's important to us on earth. And when we begin to understand that mindset and surrender to that mindset, then we're ready to receive God's forgiveness. It doesn't mean we have to get our lives all squared up and perfect in order to receive God's forgiveness in Christ because none of us could ever come close to doing that. It does mean that based on what we know, we want the priorities of God's kingdom in heaven to be our priorities here on earth. And that's why it's not enough just to say, God help me. As important as that may be, there has to be a, a mindset, something in our hearts, deep in our souls that really wants Christ. And wants Christ to begin to change us and to work in us. It's not just some sort of a fire insurance. It's so much deeper and bigger than that. You know, it's important for us to remember that the harshest words that Jesus has in Scripture are reserved for people who should know better about him. We tend to pass our harshest judgment on people who who we don't think are worthy of God. And Jesus tends to pass judgment on people who don't think God is worthy of them. Jesus is pure mercy to the people whose reputation is so soiled in society that they're simply referred to often as just sinners. And Jesus' words of judgment are aimed at people who control the religious systems of Israel. People who know all that there is to know about God and yet refuse to surrender themselves to God. They're people who have absolutely no interest in God's kingdom on heaven Becoming God's kingdom on earth. And invariably the clearest indicator of their lives shut off from God is the way in which they treat other people. Particularly people who are most needy of God's mercy and grace. Judgment is reserved for those who don't want their priorities on earth to match up with God's priorities in heaven. Judgment is reserved for people who simply don't want what heaven offers. Some people will say, well, when we all get to heaven, and, and if while on earth, we, we, the people are saying, everybody's going to get into heaven. And if we don't want what God wants on earth, then when we get to heaven, he'll change our priorities and that'll all be fixed. But I think that's backwards. I think that heaven, the ultimate and perfect fulfillment of God's kingdom and of his family gathering is not exclusive as we sometimes think of it. It, It's not a, a keeping out people that we don't think are worthy, but rather it's simply a place where the fullness of God and therefore the fullness of God's priorities reign. As Lewis describes in The Great Divorce, if we don't want God's priorities, then God doesn't have to banish us from that place. We run from it because we have no desire at all to be absorbed by it. What's interesting is that when we realize that we deserve judgment, but have been offered forgiveness, and we open our lives to that forgiveness, we respond with grace toward other people who deserve judgment. And we tend to think that taking care of me and my judgment is enough, or we tend to believe that... We really don't deserve judgment, but either way, it causes us to treat people apathetically. Matthew 25 tells us that the natural response to the realization that we deserve judgment, but in God's grace have been offered forgiveness, means that it's going to change the way we treat people. It's going to lead us to be more merciful toward people who deserve judgment. And God never gives up on us. How can we ever give up on other people? It changes how we view people around us and in this world. You see, God's forgiveness and God's love and grace on our lives is not just about someday. We tend to think of judgment and forgiveness as about that day in eternity when we're going to go to heaven, however that may happen and whenever that may happen. And it certainly is about that. But judgment and forgiveness don't begin when we die. They're integral to our lives now. Dennis Kinlaw reminds us that Abraham has little or no concept of the afterlife. He really doesn't, in that time, he doesn't have any concept of things that are going to happen outside of of what, what happens on this earth. And yet when God says, Abraham, I want you to give up what's comfortable and easy. I want you to obey me and go live a nomadic life simply because I've asked you to do that. Abraham packs up and heads out. And Abraham doesn't make that decision because he knows that whatever sacrifices he makes are going to be rewarded in eternity. Abraham makes that decision because he has come to see and to realize that following God now is far better than not following God now. And that's the heart of the gospel and the heart of our witness as people who have received the gospel. At the risk of maybe being misunderstood... I think we've made a huge mistake in our approach to evangelism and missions. We've tended to think that the motivation for both of those is the dual purpose of keeping people from going to hell and getting people into heaven. And while that's certainly a noble goal and that's certainly a part of it, I think it's flawed thinking. Because that mindset tends to create a motivation of guilt rather than genuine love for people. It tends to cause us to to witness with sort of a gunslinger mentality. How many notches do I have in my belt? Rather than a mentality of compassion. And what I've been thinking in light of particularly of Dr. Kinlaw's thoughts about Abraham. Is that I'm convinced that God in his unlimited and unhindered knowledge of people. God can see into our hearts and our thoughts and everything about us. That God is not limited in saving people by our actions. I mean, we want to be witnesses, and and he's chosen to use us. But I can't fathom that God is going to condemn people to eternal damnation simply because we didn't do what we were called to do. We didn't care enough, or, or we didn't get to them in time. I think God is bigger than that. But I'm not, I'm not talking about universalism. I'm simply saying that God has the ability to know every person's heart. And he's going to judge every person based on their response to what they know. It's still through Christ because forgiveness of sin is possible only through the cross of Christ. But I think it changes our motivation for witnessing for Christ. I'm not saying that we ought to discontinue evangelism, that we ought to discontinue caring about the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm saying that we need a more biblical motivation. We don't ignore the call to tell the world about Jesus. It's just that we're telling people about Jesus not in the context of someday, but in the context of this day. We're helping people see that they can live lives that are blessed now that they can be set free from the bondage of superstition and the bondage of sin and the bondage of guilt and all the things that, that sin and judgment create in our lives on this earth. We can be set free from that and we can know the fullness of God's blessing in our lives now. And ultimately, that will lead us to eternity with Christ, but it begins now. And we ought to be concerned about judgment and forgiveness, not just because it has some bearing on eternity, which it does, but because we want people to know the joy of Christ now. And that motivation leads us to go share Christ with people and leads us to to send missionaries and to be missionaries all around the world because we want to see people set free now. And to know the joy and the grace of Christ's forgiveness now. And to live in the fullness of his blessing now. So that people who are under judgment because of sin. Can be set free to know the forgiveness of Christ now. John Wesley hardly ever preached without describing The lost state of human souls. The first part of his sermons were usually a description of the coming judgment on the sins of human beings, and and he relates in his journal an experience that he had when he was preaching one day in the town of Bath. He said, Some of the rich and great were present, to whom, as to the rest, I declared with all plainness of speech, one, that by nature they were all children of wrath. Two, that all their natural tempers were corrupt and abominable. Three, that all their words and works, which could never be any better but by faith. And that four, a natural person has no more faith than a devil, if so much. And one of them, a Lord, stayed very patiently till I came to the middle of that fourth point. And then he said out loud, tis hot, tis very hot. And he got up and he ran down the stairs and out the door as fast as he could. And someone commenting on that entry in Wesley's journal said, if he'd have just waited for the the last part of Wesley's text, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He would have learned that over the blackness of judgment, there is the shining light of forgiveness. It's one of the great accomplishments of the gospel that holds these two seeming opposites in divine tension. God speaks of judgment so often, not because he can't wait to let us have it, but because he wants us to see that we're lost without him. So rather than running from God's judgment, we want to acknowledge it. And then surrender to receive his all-encompassing forgiveness. We love to know that God forgives us. And well, we should. It's our hope for this life and for the next. But until we're willing and ready to embrace the truth that because of sin, we deserve God's judgment. Until we're ready to acknowledge that truth and embrace it. We will never fully embrace the fullness of what his forgiveness means for us. And for this world for how we live in this world with each other. We know that we've surrendered to God's judgment and open our hearts to his forgiveness. When our natural inclination to judge people who are struggling in this world is replaced by Christ's spirit of forgiveness and mercy that has changed our lives and we want for their lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your grace in our lives. The gift in which you declare so clearly that we deserve judgment. And yet the gift of your forgiveness that you call us to receive. Father, open our minds and our hearts fully to you. Forgive us and work in us and make us people who, because of Christ, want your will on earth as it is in heaven, not just for us, but for the whole world. And we pray this through Christ. Amen.
1: Please stand as we sing together.
0: was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to